My name is Dan, and I am weird. But I don't see weird as a bad thing, though. Being weird just means you march to the beat of a different drum. You don't fit that mold that society wants to shove you into. I'm out searching for people like me. The weirder, the better. This is my story. These are their stories. This is the power of weird. This episode of The Power of Weird is brought to you by The Spectrum Perspective, communication training for the modern business. Learn more online at thespectrumperspective.com or simply follow the link in the description below. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Power of Weird, Episode 1. My name is Dan, and I'm your host. A little bit about me. I'm 37 years old. I'm 6 foot 7 inches tall. In my adult life, I've weighed as little as 295 pounds and as much as 640 pounds. I'm sometimes too smart for my own good, but at times in personal relationships, I'm also pretty clueless. I've been a vegetarian since 2001, and I also don't drink coffee. I'm a sought-after brand designer and leadership coach and the co-founder of a lightsaber combat program. I'm also a dad to a great 17-year-old kid and a proud uncle to three nephews, 21, 18, and 9, and three nieces, 15, 14, and 12. What's probably more interesting about me, though, is I'm an autistic entrepreneur and business professional. A book that I read in my early 20s changed my life forever. It was called The Secret of the Shadow by an author named Debbie Ford. In this book, Debbie talks about the things that we sometimes are embarrassed about ourselves, bringing them into the light and making them work for you, creating your own special recipe with the ingredients only you have to make a difference in your life and in the world. At this point in my life, I already knew I was weird, but I didn't know about my diagnosis. I've tried to accomplish the mission she set out for me in this book every day since. I'll leave a link to the book in the description below. Part of that mission was to make this podcast, finding other people who are weird or different or who don't fit in and who are living their best lives because of it. Through interviewing them and telling their stories, I hope to learn more about myself and that everyone listening does the same. For this first episode, I want to tell you the basics of my story. It's an interesting one, so make sure your phone is charged up or plugged in, get some fresh popcorn popped, and maybe grab a tissue or three. And let's get to it. I was born on an early September morning in 1983. My family had just moved to the south from northeastern Ohio a couple months prior, so my mom decided to have me at home. It probably also had something to do with the fact that a hospital lost my newborn big sister for a few hours before realizing she was with my mom the whole time. I was immediately a big kid, clocking in at 10 pounds, 4 ounces, and 23 and a half inches long, fresh out of the belly. My mom credits my gigantic size as reason for permanent nerve damage, but I digress. <laughs> my immediate family consisted of my big sister, Kelly, my mom, Lucy, and my dad, David. There was also an assorted cast of supporting characters, friends and extended family mostly. There was my nomadic maternal grandfather, who was lovingly referred to as Grumpy, or Grump for short. There's a fun story about his nickname, that's for another time. He's retired at this point and would travel between us and my mom's two other brothers. Those two are definitely interesting, but also for another time. There was my mom's friend, Anne, who would let me, quote, play, unquote, the organ they had in their living room. And you can't forget the folks that raised my dad. My dad had a pretty tough life, but the part that taught him about how to treat people and how to be the best version of himself came from them. 
They were born in 1903 and 1905, respectively, and were simply called Grandmother and Granddad. I didn't really have any friends my own age at this point. The closest that I would get was chasing around my sister and her friends. After all, that is part of the little brother job description. Looking back, nobody really knew what to make of me. I wasn't your typical little boy. I wasn't even your typical human. That being said, the people around me did the best they could to try and let me be who I was. My dad once wrote this in a journal that my sister found a few years ago. I don't really know what to do with a kid, except put mac and cheese in front of him and watch him go. While I have a lot of good memories of this time, there are also some difficult ones. While my mom and dad loved each other very much, they often brought out the worst in each other. My mom had been ripped away from her entire support system when my family moved, which exacerbated any anxiety and stress she was feeling. My dad felt like he was working so hard at work to make things better for his family, but he didn't realize that my mom was slowly unraveling at home. Like any other people, they brought their traumas into their relationships. Without an effective way to deal with them and move forward, as well as the constant stress of too many bills and not enough money, the majority of their interactions devolved into vicious fights. One person will be yelling and the other crying. Then, like magic, the first person will be crying and the second yelling. As an autistic, concerned, and affectionate young child, my first instinct was to always go to the one crying at the time to try to be a comfort, bring tissues, or perhaps food or drink of some kind. My sister was a small bit of a miracle where this is concerned, though, as she would try to remove me from these situations and distract me from what was going on. I remember a particular fight my parents had. My sister came up and said, Have you seen my new MC Hammer poster? As she physically turned me away from our parents and started walking towards her room. I couldn't have been more than four or five years old at the time. While I couldn't and wouldn't trade my mom and dad for anything, these fights made a very large impact on who I am and how I'd learned to deal with conflict. Once I started school, my life began to change rapidly. For one, I was five feet tall when I started kindergarten, a giant among tiny people, one could say. For two, I had a new place to shine as I was a standout academically. I also discovered for the first time just how different I really was. Now keep in mind that I started kindergarten in 1989. At that point, the word autistic meant the kid next door that was nonverbal. There really wasn't any deeper understanding than that. I was just looked at as quirky. All throughout school, I wasn't someone who had a lot of friends. I knew everybody, but had a pretty small actual circle. I loved being around other people, but it was evident right away that I didn't quite understand the social interactions that were going on. It was like having a special code word that everyone knew, but I was always guessing. It constantly changed, and when I thought I had it figured out, I would promptly put my foot in my mouth and be forced to start all over again. I figured I was seen as awkward and quirky just because I was so much bigger than everyone else. Talk about not having a clue. Over my first few years in elementary school, I started to develop what I refer to as my social process. I closely studied the people who were so smooth and accepted by everyone. How did they react to stimuli? How did they ask and answer questions? What was it that made them liked by others? It took a long time to get this down, and sometimes there are hiccups, but it allows me to interact normally, as some would say. Most people nowadays don't even have a clue about my weird wiring or autism. Even though it's not a primary focus, I also feel compelled to mention that I was a big kid weight-wise, not just height-wise. Eating and overeating, especially when under stress, was my one singular coping skill. The only thing that actually worked to calm me down or help me through something difficult. 
Ben and Jerry may cause thick thighs, but damn if they're not my buddies, too. There are a lot of programs out there now for kids on the spectrum that teach coping skills to deal with not being cognitive normal and all that comes with it. There may have been some things like this when I was young, but I wasn't on anyone's radar to need them. I was considered one of the easy kids in school. I was well behaved, eager to participate, always willing to help others, and learned very easily and quickly. Class subjects, anyway. I wasn't one the teachers had to worry about, so the close attention needed to spot an issue was never given. This isn't to say all my teachers were bad, because I've had some amazing ones, just that I wasn't a student that required that close of scrutiny. When I was little, my dad was constantly working on one project or another around the house. I wasn't really a productive helper at that age, but he always made me feel included. When we knocked out our back steps and replaced them with a deck, my dad took me to Lowe's and got us matching tool belts, hammers, and lime green Lowe's hats. When he announced that we were going to make the deck bigger, add another set of stairs, and also add a better railing, I jumped at the chance to once again don my lime green Lowe's hat. He had just told me the week before that he had rented out the video arcade at the mall for my birthday, which was only a couple weeks away. Myself and 10 of my closest friends would get a cup full of tokens and the run of the arcade the hour before it was open to the public. He figured going big for my 10th birthday was the way to go. I was beyond excited. We were working on the deck and only had one more week until my party at the arcade. It was a pretty exciting time. My dad was a hard worker and sometimes would forget to eat or drink when he had his mind set on a goal. It wasn't unusual for me to bring out a big cup of ice water and him not realizing how thirsty he was until he stopped what he was doing to take a big drink. This weekend was no different. We ran out of something or another anyway, so he drank the big cup of water. He, we hopped in the car and headed to Lowe's. We stopped at the McDonald's drive-thru on the way home. I don't recall what he ordered, but I got a two cheeseburger meal. I was still a carnivore at this point, with cheese and ketchup only. My dad ordered, pulled the car around, paid, pulled up, then finally we got our order and we're on the way home. We waited until we got there to eat with my mom. My sister was in high school and staying the weekend with her boyfriend and his mom, so it was just the three of us. Now, one thing that isn't often discussed with autism is sensitivity to different flavors, smells, tastes, and textures. What might be looked at strictly as being a picky eater is often a symptom of a sensitivity that makes something extremely uncomfortable. When we got home, I took my first cheeseburger apart, as anyone who makes a special order does, and lo and behold, it was covered with what looked like a mountain of those nasty tic-tac-sized McDonald's onions. I immediately checked the other one. Same thing. To say that I didn't take this very well was a bit of an understatement. When you're on the spectrum, and when you're a kid, the concept of fair is not always the same as the concept of reality. Combine the two and you feel a full meltdown coming on. My mom, irritated that we'd been gone for a while leaving her at home, just said deal with it. But against her objection, my dad just got up, took the cheeseburgers with him, got back in the car, and went back out to get me the right ones. My dad definitely had his issues, but he took care of things that were important to his people. He might not have thought it was a big deal, but it was to me, and that's all that mattered to him. I wouldn't normally go on about a single incident like that, but given what happened the next day, it's important for me to remember that my dad always had my back. We were out working on the deck the next day, which was Sunday. It was hot and humid because, duh, Tennessee in early September. My dad was sweating a lot, even more than normal. 
I figured it was time to go grab a big cup of water like I'd done the day before. When I came back out with it, my dad stopped and gratefully took the cup from me. It normally took a good bit of convincing for him to even take a break. This time, however, he jumped at the chance. In retrospect, he didn't look well. He was bloated and flushed, but somehow also clammy. After a big drink, he told me to go get my mom. I went inside to get her, but she was in the shower. I went back out and told him that. He said, now having some trouble breathing, again to go get my mom. I went in again and through the bathroom door told my mom that he had asked for her and was having trouble. On my way back through the house, I found my dad had come inside and was sitting on the couch in the living room. He was holding his chest at this point. My mom came out, still mostly wet from the shower, hair not dry at all. He told her that he was having a heart attack. She immediately had me call 911. When they answered, I did my best to tell them what was going on and our address. I gave the phone to my mom, who was beginning to panic, and she told them the rest. My dad was on the floor now. I just remember him holding my mom's hand and saying, Baby, it hurts. I went out to the mailbox to flag down the ambulance. Our mailbox numbers never seemed to be seen by people coming to our house for the first time. My mom called my sister while I was outside and told her to meet us at the hospital. When the ambulance got there, they quickly got to work on my dad. Once they had him on a stretcher, I held the front door open so they could get through it easier. My mom sent me out to the car, and when she frantically gathered her purse, keys, etc., she came out and we did our best to follow the ambulance. My mom was freaking out. She was running red lights and driving way faster than she ever had before. She was breathing heavily, but trying to hold it together for me. She repeatedly said to me that whatever happens, everything would be okay. I'm not sure if that was more for my benefit or hers, but she kept saying it. About two miles away from the hospital, my mom's nerves got the best of her and she couldn't drive anymore. She got out of the car at an intersection and flagged down a young college student riding a bike. She quickly stole the story to this young man who promptly put his bike in the back of our station wagon and drove us to the emergency room. He dropped us off at the ER entrance, then went and parked our car. He brought the keys back and then he was gone. His name was Joseph Dyer, and even though we never saw him again, he made a big difference in the lives of our family that day. My mom had worked at the hospital for a few years at this point. We were in a private waiting room, but as word spread, many people she knew came through to check on us. My mom and I were there. My sister got there right before we did. She was accompanied by her boyfriend Jason and his mom Marie. We were very close with them and they took good care of us. They asked us if we wanted to call anyone, but all of our family lived far away. We called Grump and he was on a plane within a few hours. We also called a special couple of teachers. They were a married couple. My sister had the husband, Mr. E.B. Hunt, as her sixth grade teacher, and I had his wife, Miss Carolyn Hunt, as my third grade teacher. Mr. Hunt had kept a close eye on me growing up too. <laughs> they came to be with us and prayed. We weren't a particularly religious group, but the thought and caring was very appreciated. The doctors were trying to stabilize my dad so they could life flight him to Vanderbilt. Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful. Approximately two hours after he arrived at the ER, he was gone. As a kid, I often gave serious thought to the idea of being a doctor. The look on the face of the ER doctor telling us my dad didn't make it was all I needed to permanently put that idea to bed. I could never be the guy to deliver that news to a scared but hopeful family. Before he was ready for us to go back and see him, Mr. Hunt, Jason, and I went outside the ER doors to the covered driveway that ambulances drive into. 
I remember thinking how strange it was. The sky was blue and the sun was shining. There were birds singing in the distance and cars driving by with people going about their daily lives. They had no idea that my world had just come crashing down around me. That my hero, the person I looked up to the most, from that point on was simply gone. My dad wanted to be cremated, so the last memory I have of seeing him was walking back into the ER operating room. Seeing my dad, who was normally very dark and olive-complected, lying flat on his back with a sheet up to his chest, not wearing any jewelry with his eyes closed, and his skin a very disturbing, scary shade of blue. It was immediately evident that my dad wasn't there. Everything changed that day. Accumulated trauma gives you time to understand that something is happening. Sudden trauma shocks you into a new reality. My teacher that year told my mom that when I got back to school after my dad's memorial service that it seemed like nothing had happened at all. I guess by that point I was good at putting on the happy, eager, good student Dan face. We had that arcade birthday party, but with my Uncle Clinton instead of my dad, who drove up the day after he died and stayed with us for about a week. It was all any of us could do to get up that morning and drive to the mall. There's a certain innocence that you innately possess as a child. For everyone, there's a turning point where that goes away, and you see the world for more of the dark, scary place that it can be. For me, it was that day, September 5th, 1993, a week before my 10th birthday, the day I lost my dad. Over the next few years, I became even more aware of how awkward I was. My dad's death had made a big mark on me, and I was still reeling with the aftermath. One thing that always made me upset was that I never got the chance to tell him goodbye or how much he really meant to me. When I advanced from elementary school to middle school, I changed schools and started some much needed healing. My new school was a pilot program of sorts. All the knowledgeable teachers and curriculum that your standard middle school would have, but built into the existing framework of a small elementary setting. For me, this was a godsend. The smaller size meant that I could spend more time making friends and being active in everything the school had to offer. I had three father figures at this school that took care of me like their own, and that I will be eternally grateful for. Because of these three, for the very first time in my life, I realized that I had been simply tolerated up till that point, but not truly welcomed and accepted. The first was Eric. He was the assistant coach for the basketball team. Oh yeah, did I mention I was already essentially the height I am now, at 12 years old, in seventh grade? That's six feet seven inches. I am not and never was an athlete, but I'll be damned if I wasn't intimidating getting off the bus. Eric was also the after-school teacher for the middle school group. Eric always made time to talk and listen. Despite the outward appearance of authority that was sometimes required for his job, Eric was actually a big teddy bear. He wore his heart on his sleeve and had a grin that would put Magic Johnsons to shame. Eric took me under his wing and always had my back, but as opposed to my dad, as well as most male role model types at the time. Eric taught me that it was okay to be passionate and to have feelings, that it was okay to be happy and okay to be sad and okay to share and let it out. The second was John. John was my homeroom teacher for both seventh and eighth grades. My seventh grade year was his first year teaching. I had identified pretty early on that being a teacher was a good bet. More than likely a music teacher of some sort, but still a teacher so I had a big interest in John's experience. He was an outstanding teacher. He was challenging, bright, energetic, and excited. I learned a lot from John, but more than anything, I learned that you don't need an excuse to be who you are and to have fun doing it. 
He never thought twice about doing things his way, and even if it was hard, he always enjoyed what he did. The third was Jason. Jason was the director of the school's after-school program, a job I would proudly have one day when I was living in North Carolina. He was also the head basketball coach and taught different engineering and technology classes for the middle school. I mentioned before about always being one of the easy kids in school. Jason was the first person to take a deeper look to see who I was, what I had to offer, and what I needed. He loved having me as an example in basketball, too. His rules were attitude-oriented. You didn't have to be the first to finish a sprint or get somewhere. You just couldn't be last. And despite being a fat giant and definitely not an athlete, I made sure to always follow that rule. You could see the pride on his face when I would push through a sprint and finish before one of his all-stars. He'd often make sure to let them know about it, too. Jason taught me how to properly shake someone's hand, and how that and looking a person in the eye were signs of respect. He taught me that my effort, regardless of the outcome, had value. He taught me that being a man isn't about being macho and having a big ego, that instead, it was about being strong in who you are and being respectful of who others are as well. When at this school, I met the woman who would later be my, become my son's mom. We dated for two years and then broke up when my mom and I moved before I started high school. I'll talk more about her, but later on. By the time high school started for me, my sister had moved out and met my now brother-in-law, Sam. They actually got married the August before my freshman year started. That's another fun story for later. My brother-in-law, whom I love and cherish dearly and who has been a major force for good in my life, would really warrant his own podcast. He is crazy, goofy, and always there when you need him. He shows how he feels through his actions and not always through his words. This has a tendency to drive my very verbal mom crazy. To give an example of what it's like spending time with Sam, when people bring up the fact that he really didn't have any game, so to speak, when it came to women, which is very well documented, his reply is simply, I've got two sex trophies that say otherwise, referring to my now 21 and 18 year old nephews. For now, I'm going to leave the topic of my brother-in-law by just saying that it's been 24 years of that, over and over and over again. High school was a difficult time for me. The social issues that had always plagued me were compounded by the fact that I was in a new school, in a new city, and after my first semester, had a major depression diagnosis. My mom had gone back to school after my dad died and now was working full-time in Nashville, about 40 minutes away. I have the utmost appreciation and respect for what my mom accomplished, but it often felt like I was simply on my own. My mom had a lot of anger towards my dad that was also really starting to come out at me, with high school being a tipping point. To make matters worse, my grades in school began to slip for the first time. When I was younger, I would ask my mom about other kids getting paid for good grades. She would always reply that it was not about what grades you got, it was about mastering the material. When she would get report cards though with C's and the occasional D, she would completely flip out. She'd say, why am I getting these grades? That is unacceptable. I would reply that I was mastering the material and to ask me something from my textbook, anything. It didn't go over well. At home with my mom, there was always fighting and I hated it. I just didn't understand what I did to warrant that treatment. I know now that I wasn't the easiest kid to live with. I also know that the bulk of the anger and resentment that my mom harbored was not really for me, just directed at me. 
I was in band in high school, as well as show choir my senior year. I had been in band and choir since fifth grade, so not a big shocker. But in high school, that became my primary social circle. My high school overall had very good people, and some of the teachers I had, Miss Lowe, Miss Taylor, and Miss McKnight, well, just to name a few, were absolutely amazing. But it was clear very quickly that I was no longer in the safe and welcoming environment that my middle school had been. I remember being in marching band right around my junior year. Now, mind you, being made fun of is nothing new to the fat kid or the weird kid, but it hits differently when a teacher does it. We were at a home football game. My mom happened to be sitting close in the stands to one of my teachers and her good friend. They were saying some pretty awful things about me, not knowing my mom was in earshot. I understand that people joke and kid, and my mom was much more upset at the time than I was, but it further reinforced that I was misunderstood and not needed or wanted by many, even in something that I was a top performer in, like band. I had a circle of good close friends that I won't get too much into right now. My friends Kyle, Danny, Ricky, and Joe were people who I spent a lot of time with. I knew I couldn't always rely on all of them, but we were close nonetheless. I was in a band with a couple of these guys and another friend named Cody that led me to my first experience with entrepreneurship. The summer before our senior year, we decided to have a CD release party, which basically amounted to cutting an album and hosting a concert hoping to sell the CDs to your friends. It didn't sit right with me, though, just doing what everyone else did. That kicked off an eventful few months that culminated in Jamfest, a 17-band, all-local, all-free show done big, loud, and right. As the lead guy, it was my name on the building lease and the liability insurance. I had to wait until I turned 18 three weeks before the concert to sign the papers. This crazy brouhaha led me to be voted most ambitious in my senior class and also showed that I wasn't just an idea guy, but someone who could execute too. I also had an on-again, off-again, girlfriend type person. She was absolutely wonderful and actually interested in me, but I wasn't ready truthfully for something that was real and healthy at that point in my life. Of the regrets I have, not treating her better is definitely high on the list. As high school wound down and graduation loomed, my path forward was anything but clear. While others spent months practicing and drove all over to audition, I was depressed and stayed at home. While others were gearing up for college, I wasn't gearing up for anything. Although I was finally starting to find myself, my self-esteem was at an all-time low and I had no idea what I was going to do. Before my dad died, he promised my sister a new car and new horn for graduating high school. In theory, to go forward and use both in college. My dad died her junior year, but my mom made good on his promise. Using a portion of the life insurance money my dad left us from his job, she made that happen for Kelly. Again, remember that when you're on the spectrum, the concept of fair can be very black and white. As adults, we learned that life is all a shade of gray, but when it comes to something you feel like you deserve and work for, it's hard to see that happen. My plan through middle school and high school was to go to college to become a band director. I would have been really good at it, and I had a love for everything it entails. I was accomplished in music, even winning the nationally recognized Woody Herman Jazz Award my senior year. I loved teaching and working with others to better themselves. I also was talented on the theory side, writing, arranging, and breaking down pieces to make them fit just right. I assumed since I was wanting to do music as a career and for my education, that my mom would honor my dad's promise to me as well. 
When my senior year came around, my mom put off and then eventually made it clear she wasn't going to. This is something that stuck with me. My sister is of the opinion that I should have gotten over it a long time ago. It's always easier to let things go from a position of have, though, versus one of have not. I've only realized in the last year that it wasn't about the things. It was about the fact that, at one of the lowest points in my life, I felt like no one believed in me. I felt like I wasn't worth the effort or the expense because I wasn't good enough. It's difficult to have grown up in the shadow of someone like my sister. As a matter of fact, until I started middle school, and in band circles until we moved and I started high school, my first name may as well have been Kelly's brother instead of Daniel. I was always envious of the fact that she got seven more years with my dad and got seven years before I came around and they moved to Tennessee where they were a semi-normal family without the yelling and screaming and drama. When I didn't go and audition at universities and hadn't committed anywhere for my freshman year of college, everyone around me came down on me pretty hard. It's ironic looking back now that the reason was because I felt they didn't actually think I could do it. Two weeks before my high school graduation, my son's mom and I started talking on the phone again. We got back together and dated for another year and a half. I want to get this out of the way right now. This is not a bad person. In fact, I don't really believe in bad people per se. However, she was not at all a good match for me. Our relationship mirrored my mom and dad's. The difference was that I made the conscious decision to not fight and yell and argue. I just shut up and became a bit of a doormat. At that point in my life, I didn't believe that I deserved anything better. And there was real value at that point in someone that did at least want me. I know that is sad and kind of pitiful, but at the time, it was the truth. I know I've talked about my weight swings, but when this relationship started, it kicked off one of the biggest and most personally damaging swings that I've had. I went from about 330 pounds up to 450 pounds. There were some good things happening at this time though. I worked at Walmart for the first year we were together. This in itself was not exactly a good thing, but I did meet the woman that many years later would become my absolute everything. Her name was Jessica, and I knew from moment one that she was it. But my self-esteem sucked so bad that I immediately wrote it off because she was the ultimate unattainable girl. She was the girl I always wanted, but never thought I deserved. I also was still with my son's mom, and even though we had our issues, I loved her, and I'm not someone who just walks away from someone important. That being said, Jess and I became close friends and had a lot of fun together at work. She made that year livable, and I am so grateful for that. She was also one of the first people that showed she wanted me around, but in a positive and healthy way. The next fall, I started attending our local university, trying to pick up where I had left off. It was harder than I expected. For one, I was severely out of practice music-wise. For two, I gained an extra 150 pounds. It made marching band a lot harder, specifically the marching part especially with a 50-some-odd-pound sousaphone now very tightly wrapped around my bulging torso. Not to mention it being much more difficult to schlep around campus for classes. We found out she was pregnant early in the semester. After a few months of arguing, trying to figure things out, I came to a big realization. If this little boy on the way is to have any chance of having a strong, positive male role model, he couldn't see me be a doormat and never stand up for myself. 
At the same time though, I absolutely refuse to let another kid grow up in a house like I did, with constant screaming, yelling, and not knowing it's not their fault. This information led me to talk with his mom and us agreeing to end our relationship. After the fall semester, I didn't register for the spring and didn't come back, not on campus anyway. My brother-in-law's job got downsized and they moved back to Tennessee. My nephews being teeny tiny, one in three at the time, so I went and moved by them. They could have chosen to go somewhere else, but they decided to come back here, knowing that the situation with my son was going to be hard. This marked the beginning of a 10-year period where I sometimes lived with them and then would have my own place nearby. It's worth saying again that I am a liberal-leaning, agnostic vegetarian. The first two pretty much since I could read and make up my own mind about things. The third since the summer before my senior year in high school. When I first met my son's mom, I was 12 and she was 13. Those types of things don't really come up. It's amazing though how quickly they do when you're 19 and there's a kid on the way. A few weeks after we split up, a sheriff delivered court papers with my name on them. My son's mom had filed a preemptive paternity lawsuit after we broke up. It came to light much later that her mother insisted she file the papers so that, quote, I wouldn't run out on her, unquote. That didn't make any sense as I paid half of the prenatal expenses and had been active in everything going on. I independently took a parenting class. My family had our own baby shower. I also had my own place with room just for my little guy. I was ready and eager to be a dad. If you've never had the experience of having a family law attorney that you and your family are actually paying, throw your court papers down on a desk and laugh in your face, then you are lucky. I have, and it sucks. When she finally could contain herself, she said that those suits are only filed after a baby is born, and only if the father doesn't want to be involved. The suit they filed asked for crazy stuff too. They wanted tax returns, 10 years of medical and psychiatric records. Surprised they didn't ask for how long my little left toe was. I freaked out with all this. I was only 19. Psychiatric records that date that far back would include me going to counseling after my dad died. Not to mention my major depression diagnosis in high school. Were they trying to set up that I was somehow unfit to be a parent? None of this made sense and we were all pretty lost. Despite all this, I was working hard at this point to improve my life. I had my first professional experience with graphic design at this time. As well, I had lost a considerable amount of weight. Kelly, Sam, and I, with my nephews riding comfortably in their double jogging stroller, were training for a half marathon, running at times up to 12 miles per day. A few weeks before my son was born, I actually finished a half marathon. That's 13.1 miles for those who don't know at a whopping 400 pounds. This particular race had a 5K, 10K, and half marathon that all started together. The only way to tell the racers apart at the starting line was to look at what color their race numbers were. A lot of people came up to me that thought I was running the 5K, very impressed that such a big guy would take it on. Then, when they got close, would be shocked that I was running further that day than they were. Don't get me wrong, my legs hurt for the next week and I could barely walk the next day. Regardless, there's still a certain pride that an accomplishment like that brings. USA Today says that less than 1% of Americans have run a half or full marathon. 
I wonder how many people have done it at 400 pounds. When going through the process with my son's mom before he was born, there were certain things that were agreed to. For one, his name was to be Justin David after my dad and his last name hyphenated with hers and mine. For two, they were supposed to call me the minute she went into labor. For three, he was just as much my son as he was hers. I already loved him dearly and was excited and for my age, pretty well prepared to be a dad. When he was born, none of these three happened how I expected them. I want to preface this by saying that not everyone that comes from the same philosophical background would have acted this way. I have worked hard over time to overcome the prejudices that the event I'm about to tell you about instilled in me. Remember, liberal, agnostic, vegetarian. Don't know why that last one mattered so much, but apparently it did. I want it on record that three of my dearest friends in the world, Lee and Kenny, as well as my friend Tim, are the opposite of me, typically, philosophically, and politically, but are still some of the finest people that I know. This has nothing to do with that. The day my son was born, I got a call after his mom had been in labor for hours already. My sister drove the five of us in their green Isuzu rodeo to the hospital where they were. It was Kelly, Sam, almost four-year-old Andrew, and one-and-a-half-year-old Christopher, who was very proud to be behaving well to meet his new cousin, and me. My mom was out of town for work and wouldn't get there until the next day. By the time we arrived, he had just made his grand entrance. We saw him in the window of the nursery as he was getting checked out. There was something odd on his name tag, though. It said Justin Alexander, and then her last name only. What the hell? This is my kid, right? I would also come to find out that I wasn't listed on his birth certificate either. I knew that his mom had been through a lot that day, so I figured maybe these were mistakes. She was tired and it wasn't the right time to bring them up anyway. From there we went to her room and he followed shortly. I got to hold my little guy, talk to him, sing to him, make him laugh with silly faces for a half hour before her mother came in. What happened next is still enough to shock me 17 years later. Remember that part of my autism is having a damn near photographic and encyclopedic memory of things that I have an interest in. And you better believe my kid is something I'm interested in. I only say this so no one thinks I'm embellishing in any way what happened. Her mother came to me and said, quote, Daniel, it's time for you to leave. He needs to spend time with his real family now, unquote. With the most shocked and appalled look I believe I've ever made, I looked at this woman, someone I've known since I was 12 years old, and simply replied, Excuse me? She repeated her sentence word for word. Quote, It's time for you to leave. He needs to spend time with his real family now. Unquote. She said it this time with more frustration in her voice that I had not immediately left the vicinity upon her first request. My temper flaring and my face turning bright red, I replied, this is my son, and I am his real family. Now I want to point out that I was initially unsure about including this next bit. I talked it over with many trusted people and the opinions were split, but I came to the decision to include it because it is authentic and true. It is in no way intended as a threat or harmful, simply how I felt and how I feel anyone would have reacted in this situation. I give my sister a lot of credit for what happened next. Kelly is normally the aggressive one. I am normally the one with the long fuse. That day, she saw that I was incapable of handling the situation in my customary way, 
And so she stepped in and ushered me out, saying we would figure it out, and that wasn't the place to respond. That woman, that slippery, nasty, vindictive, hypocritical woman didn't realize it, but my sister saved her life that day. I, to this day, have never actually lost my temper. I have never thrown a punch. I've never hurt anyone. I am a kind soul, except at that moment. If my sister hadn't stepped in, I would have, at the very least, beaten her within an inch of her life. Sam took the nephews to get something to eat, and Kelly and I went to the hospital social worker's office. We told her the story and what happened. She simply replied, like any sensible person would, that no one would not want a father involved. She went to talk to them, trying to hammer out some sort of understanding. Four hours later, she returned with a very simple conclusion. Quote, they don't want you here, unquote. I cried in her office. I cried in the hallway. I cried outside. I cried in my sister's SUV. It wasn't until little Andrew in the back seat said, Mommy, why is Uncle Danny crying? I'm scared. At that moment, it hit me. The lawsuit, the crazy demands, his name. They didn't want me around their boy. I was a heathen in their view and couldn't be allowed to contaminate their child with my views. My kid was gone. And as a 19-year-old young man with no resources and at the time no professional skills, I didn't have the ability to fight it. I was out. Bye-bye, Daddy. Bye-bye, Dan. When hearing this story for the first time, my friend Lee, who I mentioned earlier, said something that stuck with me. Evil hides in all places. Just because someone says they are something doesn't make it true. I still don't really believe in evil people, but in evil actions, I sure do. I've witnessed them up close. Thank you for listening to The Power of Weird. This episode of The Power of Weird was brought to you by The Spectrum Perspective, communication training for the modern business. Learn more online at thespectrumperspective.com or simply follow the link in the description below. Make sure to stay tuned for more of my story as well as great interviews with amazing weird people. And remember, be the weird you want to see in the world. We'll see you next time on The Power of Weird.